with me in your Bibles to the book of Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah 2, the second chapter there in the book of Jeremiah, one of the Old Testament prophets. We're continuing today in the series Misalignment. This is the third uh, week that we've been in this series. I expect next Sunday we'll finish it up. But we started with the very first being out of unity, out of what it means to be relationally misaligned. And when I speak of misalignment, that's just being out of unity, out of sorts with someone else, at least in a relational context. We talked about the importance of being in right relationship with those around us, whether that's part of our family, whether that's people we work with, people in our own churches, or whether it's total strangers. Jesus placed a priority on being aligned with one another relationally, even to the point of where he said, if you're presenting your offering at the altar and uh, your brother has something against you and you realize that, you need to leave your gift at the altar, run and make it right with your brother, and then come back to present your offering. In other words, to continue in worship. And so we looked the very first week at relational misalignment and how often we have to apply forgiveness in our relationships to, uh, to be right with those around us. The second week, last Sunday, we looked at financial misalignment and how often we, uh, we fail to look at our finances and our possessions from God's perspective and, and follow His agenda and His purpose for what He places in our care, that He's the owner of it all, everything, the car in the driveway, the house we live in, uh, the, the, the paycheck we get every week. He is the owner of all of that, and we're called to be good managers, good stewards of those things. So we look at financial misalignment, what happens when we come out of alignment with God's understanding of our finances and possessions, with His agenda and His purpose. And so today, we're going to continue in this series looking at the topic of spiritual misalignment. Spiritual misalignment. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper, and in many ways, I'll go ahead and say, uh, we'll have an invitation time at the end of this message, but the Lord's Supper in a lot of ways is the application <laughs> of, uh, of this message. And so a lot of this is a lead-in to celebrating what Christ has done for us, is the time, understanding what He calls us and who He calls us to be as followers of His. And so spiritual misalignment is the topic this morning. The thing we need to understand and keep in mind is that whenever we talk about misalignment, it is not a verb, it is a noun. Okay, it's not a verb, it's a noun. And, and even when it's a noun, it's not an animate object. Right? I can't tell you, hey, when you go to Kroger later today, bring me back a, a gallon of misalignment. Okay? It's not something we can put our hands on. It's not something that we can measure. It, it is more a state. right? It's a state in which we often find ourselves as people. Misalignment is a state, and there are times we find ourselves in a state of misalignment relationally with those around us, in a state of misalignment financially, misunderstanding what I just said, understanding God's perspective for our finances and our possessions. But then there are also times where if we take an honest inventory of our lives, we would have to agree that we are in a state of misalignment even spiritually. So when I talk about spiritual misalignment, there are kind of two tracks that that runs on. One track involves the believer. If you're a Christian here this morning, meaning not that you were born in America, not that your grandma or grandpa or mom or dad were Christians, but you've come to that place where you've owned your sin and you've admitted your sin before God, and yet you've turned from it and confessed it and asked Jesus to forgive it and take over your life. If you're a believer and a follower of Christ, then it is still possible for you to be in a state of, and for me as well, obviously, to be in a state of spiritual misalignment. Whenever we choose to allow sin to take root in our lives, whenever we choose to, to place uh, an emphasis on disobedience over devotion to the Lord, if we place a greater affection on some area of sin or disobedience more than we have an affection towards Christ, then we're going to become spiritually misaligned with God, even as believers. If we begin to 
drift from God, if we adopt a mentality that says, you know what, I'm going to come to God when I want input, but by and large, I'm going to live my life, you know, as sort of the ruler of my own life. I'm going to make my own decisions. I'll come to God when I need Him. I'm going to pursue what I want to pursue in my life. I'm not really going to give much care as to what God wants for me. Uh, Then we've come to a place of spiritual misalignment. And I would be, be honest and say that probably all over this room, there are numerous believers, followers of Christ, who have a genuine relationship with God. You are going to heaven when you die, right? You remember when you gave your life to Christ, but you're at a place where you're not walking with God the way you did at the beginning. There have been times in my life, ebbs and flows, where I have been so close to Christ as a believer, and then there have been times in my life where my devotion to Him began to wane, my devotion to Him began to, 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 to die out, my, my flame began to flicker, so to speak. And it didn't mean that I lost my relationship with Him, but it meant that I had come to a place where I wasn't, uh, I didn't have the mind of Christ, I didn't have the heart that God wanted me to have for Him, and I came to a place of spiritual misalignment. And all over this place this morning, more than likely, there are numerous people who are in a place of spiritual misalignment as believers. But there's a second track where this applies, this whole concept of misalignment where this applies, and that's to the one who's never given their life to Christ to begin with. For the one who has heard the gospel or or never heard the gospel, regardless, if one has never come to the place where they've turned from their sin and invested or, or, or yielded their life in the person of Jesus, trusting in his payment on the cross for their sins. If someone has never done that, then Ephesians chapter 1 and chapter 2 says that they have, have ultimately come to a place where the wrath of God is upon them. The weight of their sin is upon them. They are spiritually blinded. They are spiritually dead in their trespasses and in their sins. And so for the person who's never given their life to Christ, they are spiritually misaligned to the point to where their eternity is affected. Unless we forget, in every message of the series, I remind us that with any area of misalignment, there is always, always, always a cost. There is always a cost to our misalignment. Misalignment is a state in which we often find ourselves. And what we're going to see today is that we're not the first. We're not the first. Because Jeremiah chapter 2 is going to give us a stark reminder that people have been abandoning God and walking from God almost from the very, very beginning. Something we need to realize before we dig into chapter 2 in the book of Jeremiah is that whenever we choose to reject God, right, we don't want a relationship with Him, so we reject Christ. Or when we come to a place to where as believers we abandon Him for something less. If we reject God or if we abandon God, it is guaranteed always, always, always we're going to eventually replace Him with something else, with a substitute God in our lives. And where there are people represented here that have chosen not to give your lives to Christ, there is something that is God to you. It may be your career. It may be your finances. It may be your relationship. It may be a pursuit. It may be some lofty goal that you've set for yourself. Or it may be you yourself. But if you've rejected Christ as Savior, if you do not have a relationship with God, I promise you, you have substituted something lesser as God in your life. And for those of us who have given our lives to Christ, If we choose to not reject him, but if we choose to abandon him, to walk away from him, there will eventually come a time that as we abandon him and as we walk away and as we pursue a greater affection, as we pursue a higher devotion than Christ, guaranteed we will replace him with a substitute God. And we see it from the very beginning in Scripture all the way through the end of time. The replacement of God with something lesser. And when that happens, it is spiritual misalignment to the highest degree. Jeremiah chapter 2 would have been written roughly 2,700 years ago. 
give or take. It is set in a time when the people of God, the people of Judah specifically, were in an apostate condition. They had begun to walk away from God on every level. They were bankrupt morally. They were bankrupt financially in many ways. They were bankrupt spiritually. They had absolutely abandoned God. And seven centuries before Christ came, the people of Judah were in free fall, even though they were God's chosen people. And so God chooses to send a prophet by the name of Jeremiah. Jeremiah would prophesy for 40 years plus to the people of Judah, to God's chosen people. And yet he's known as the weeping prophet because for the most part, Jeremiah was rejected by the people of God. He stood in, the, in, in his place before God's people with God's message for God's day, uh, for his people, and yet they, they totally rejected what Jeremiah had to say, eventually ultimately trying to do him in and take his life from him ultimately uh, uh, as a result of the words that he shared. He prophesied for four decades. And yet the people of God would not listen to him, though they desperately needed to hear from God. And it's there in that context that we begin to read here. In chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, we're going to break it down, but we're going to cover a large number of verses, about 13, and then add a couple of extras as well. So Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 1, looking at the topic of spiritual misalignment for those who have never accepted Christ and for those who have, but have walked away from God. And so let's begin to look at this. Chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. It says, so the word of the Lord came to me, Jeremiah says, came to me, saying, go and proclaim in the ears of Jerusalem, saying, thus says the Lord, I remember concerning you the devotion of your youth, the love of your betrothals, your following after me in the wilderness through a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first of his harvest, and all who ate of it became guilty. Evil came upon them, declares the Lord. The picture that God is painting here is a picture of Judah's past, the people of God's past. And he's going back, some would say, all the way to Mount Sinai. When, Mount Sinai, when Oz, uh, Moses would ultimately stand before God, he would meet God there. God would establish a covenant with the people of God. And, and some say that he's referring all the way back to that day when the people of God became just that, the people of God. And the Lord looks back to that period and he says, that was the day when you were devoted to me fully. If you go back a slide, or if you look at that word there, devotion, that's, that's highlighted, the, that word means kessid. It, it, is a, it is a faithful love. It is an undying love. And God says, that was a day when you were fully devoted to me, when we walked together and there was faithfulness and there was relationship, and there was fruitfulness, and there was joy. God says, there was a day that happened in the past, and he says to the people of Judah, you remember that day when we were so close. He uses marriage language. He says, it, it was the love of your betrothals. I was faithful to you through the difficult times in the wilderness. I provided for you. If you go on to verse 3, he says that I was there to be your shield and your protector. Anyone who came and, and, and saw the language he uses there, any who, who ate of the fruit of my harvest, meaning who, who tried to come upon the people of, uh, of Judah or of Israel at that time, he says evil would come upon them. God was their protector. And he looks back to the day, as some of us may be able to, and he says, remember the day when you were so close to me. Remember the day when there was no other but me to you. Remember when I had no rivals. <laughs> Remember when it was just you and me, God says, and your heart was knit as close to me as it possibly could have been. He goes on to verse 4. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord. Remember, he's speaking to a people who have abandoned God. He says, thus says the Lord, what injustice did your fathers find in me 
that they went far from me, listen, and walked after emptiness and became empty. It's as though God is saying, in this place of spiritual misalignment, right, when we were once connected and we were in in line with one another, we were aligned in heart and mind and soul. He says, when we were once aligned and now we're so misaligned, it's as though God is saying, who moved? Right? Because alignment, misalignment always deals with two people, always deals with two entities. So if we're misaligned, it seems as though God is saying, who moved here? What injustice did your fathers find in me? What what was it that I did to them that was wrong that ultimately led to us being where we are today? And God reminds us of the simple principle that anytime we're misaligned, there's always going to be a cost to that. He says that they went far from me. They walked after emptiness. Remember, when we abandon God, we always ultimately replace him with a substitute. They abandoned God. They began to chase after what ultimately was empty to them, and they became empty themselves. There's always a cost. When we substitute God with something else, always. They didn't say, where's the Lord who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, right? They had forgotten what God had done for them, who led us through the wilderness, through a land of deserts and of of pits, through a land of drought and of deep darkness, through a land that no one crossed and where no man dwelt. I brought you into the fruitful land to eat its fruit and its good things. How has God blessed you in these recent days? How has God taken care of you from the time that you gave your life to Christ all the way up to today? How much good has he done for you? How many times has he worked good out of the most difficult, dark days of your life? He says, I brought you into the fruitful land to eat its fruit and its good things. You came and you defiled my land and my inheritance. You made an abomination. Even the leaders, the spiritual leaders, the priests didn't say, where's the Lord? And those who handle the law did not know me. The rulers also transgressed against me. And the prophets prophesied by Baal. There's that substitute. Prophesied by Baal, and they walked after things that did not profit. God goes on, verse 9 through verse 12. He says, therefore I will yet contend with you, declares the Lord. And with your sons' sons I will contend. Across to the coastlands of Kittim, that would have been a reference to Cyprus, modern day, and see, and send to Kedar, Arabia, right? And observe closely. It's as though God's saying, look this far from west to east and see if there has been such a thing as this. Has a nation changed gods when they were not gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. God is saying, even the pagan nations that do not know me, God says, who have fabricated for themselves some form of who they think is God to them, even the pagan nations don't just abandon their false gods. And yet my people have done just that. Verse 12, he says, be appalled, O heavens, at this, and shudder, be very desolate, declares the Lord. We cannot afford to tolerate spiritual misalignment in our lives, not even for a second. And when we come to a place to where we begin to embrace sin at the exclusion of the God who saved us, when we come to a place to where we begin to to conform more to the image of this world which does not reflect Christ, where we begin to conform more to that image with not even a thought of who God wants us to be, we cannot tolerate that. There's always a cost to that kind of misalignment. God makes it so clear to his people 2,700 years ago, and it's bearing true still today that misalignment cannot be verse 13. He summarizes it, I think, as clearly as you can. He says, verse 13, cut to the chase, for my people have committed two evils. 
one, they have forsaken me. Then it describes himself, the fountain of living water. You know, living water would be referred to as water that was moving, it was active, it was vibrant, it would have a source. It wouldn't be like a pond or a lake that had no real inflow or outflow. It becomes so easily stagnant. Living water is water with a source that is moving. It is fresh. It is life-giving. He says, my people have forsaken me. And remember, when we forsake God and when we wander from God, we always replace him with a substitute. That's where the second part of his... Uh, of his evil is he says they have forsaken me the fountain of living waters to what to hew or to dig for themselves cisterns wells broken cisterns that can hold no water in other words rather than to 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 continue in fellowship and relationship with me the fountain of living waters god says my people have chosen to forsake me to abandon me to walk away from me and they have substituted me with something of their own work Right? They have begun to dig their own wells with their own hands, figuratively speaking, and it's there that they think they're going to find uh, ultimate fulfillment in their lives. It's there that they think they're going to find life. But here's the reality. The, the, the very wells they've dug for themselves for fulfillment are broken wells. Often in the Old Testament era, they would pla- line those wells with plaster so that they could hold water and it wouldn't seep into the ground. When that plaster lining would begin to crack or break under that hot uh, uh, Israelite sun, then it would no longer be able to hold water for any sustainable amount of time. If you came to that well and it, it was broken, you would come thirsty and dry and parched, looking for life-sustaining water, but it wouldn't be there because it had, had let you down. And God is saying, you have abandoned me, and you've begun pursuing your own things. What do we pursue today? We pursue uh, uh, sinful things. We pursue things of the world. We pursue our careers. We pursue other people. We pursue anything that goes against God is first in our lives. And he says, it's going to leave you high and dry and thirsty and unfulfilled because there is always a cost to misalignment, always. They couldn't fix themselves. Verse 22, although you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your iniquity is before me, declares the Lord God. This was not a hygiene issue. (laughs) This was a spiritual issue. Jesus would recognize much the same thing book of revelation last book of the bible the apostle john helps us to look into things of an eternal nature the book of revelation however the first couple of chapters or so he's looking into the life of seven specific churches that existed in that period and so in revelation chapter two you don't have to turn there but you can just read a few verses with me Jesus is actually speaking to the church in Ephesus, and he's talking about much the same thing that the people of Judah 700 or so years before had dealt with. This church at Ephesus had done a lot well. Verses 1 through 3 would capture that, but look at what he says in verse 4. He says, but I have this against you. This is Jesus speaking to the church in Ephesus. I have this against you, that you have left your first love, not forgotten. You have walked out on, you have forsaken, you have abandoned, you have left your first love. What's the remedy? He says, therefore, do three things. One, remember from where you've fallen. It's kind of much the same language that God would use, wouldn't he, through Jeremiah to the people 700 years before Christ. Remember. Remember when you were devoted. Remember when you were so close. Remember when we were like this. He says the first step is to remember. Remember what it was like when you walked closely with me. Remember from where you have fallen. Number two, he says, repent. 
own that sin, admit the wandering, admit the fact that you have abandoned me and replaced me with something else. Repent, turn from that. And then number three, do the deeds you did at first. Maybe if we want to make all of these an R, we can say, repent. Remember what it used to be like. Can you remember that? Remember what it was like when you first heard the message of Jesus? Remember what it was like when you would run to his word? Remember what it was like when you would face a hard decision and it would be here you'd turn first? Remember what it was like whenever you would open up Scripture or you'd sit in a church service or you would have fellowship with other believers or you'd pray and it was as though God had just shown up on the very spot right in front of you? Our fellowship when it was so close, remember that? He says, remember, repent, and return. Or else I'm coming to you, he says to this church, and I will remove your lampstand. That's a reference to the ministry of the church. I'll remove your lampstand out of its place unless you'll repent. In other words, Jesus was saying that we cannot afford to tolerate spiritual misalignment, not even for a second. It comes in all shapes and sizes. Idols that we embrace take the place of Christ-like things. About a month ago, I was in Cuba with our team of four on that missions trip. We were engaged in a number of different things, Bible studies, encouraging that church that sometimes is often beat down, construction, a variety of things that we engaged in. You're not allowed to be able to do ministry outside the walls of the church Cuba, of course, being a communist country, the government controls much of what takes place there. We couldn't go door to door as you can here, knock on doors and ask about having conversation about spiritual things. You can't do that. But we were able to make visits because it would be the leaders in the church there that we worked with, Gelbert Baptist, who would, um, who would set up visits for us to make, usually to someone who was a part of that church ministry, but almost always involving someone in that home that didn't have a relationship with Christ. And we got to share the gospel. We saw probably five or six come to place their faith in Jesus in the middle of a communist country because they heard the message of the gospel. And it was just an incredible experience. One such visit, however, stands out to me. And it wasn't one who placed their faith in Christ, but it was a believer who came out of spiritual misalignment back into a right standing with God again. Her name was Josephine. She was a bit older. You can see her picture on the overhead there. As we began to sit down and talk with her, it was myself, it was Ted Comerford, who Ted was a part of our team, many of you know him. He's recently moved with his family now to Florida because of work. But Ted and I, along with a translator that we had assigned to our team and then also a water guy, long story, but anyway, the water boy, um, who was assigned to our team as well, Cuban national that was there. And, um, and so we're there visiting. We had one or two others from the church that were with us, and we were visiting. We met Josephine, her daughter or granddaughter, I can't recall now, uh, was probably about my age, I guess. She had placed her faith in Christ already, and Josephine as well had also placed her faith in Christ. However, as the conversation unfolded, we learned that she had an idol in her house that she had had for years. Now, let me pause there and give a little bit of a backstory. Uh, in Cuba, you will find a religion called Santeria that is a blend of um, African voodoo and witchcraft that came into the country in the 1800s under the guise of Catholicism. And so it's a very syncretistic type religion, but it is a very dark religion. There are a lot of details there that are extremely dark, uh, very, very ungodly. 
And uh, Santeria, however, Santeria is, is prevalent amongst the whole nation of Cuba. In fact, one Cuban writer in a book that I read has said that it is the most popular religion in the whole entire nation. Well, for Josephine, she had a nephew who had been involved in Santeria, and she had made a promise that she would keep this idol in her house as a promise to her nephew. And so she had already given her life to Jesus, and yet she had this one stronghold in her life. And we began to talk with Josephine, and we said, Josephine, look outside and see the blue sky and look at the beauty of your country. Who created that? And she knew instantly this was God who created this. We said, do you have this idol in your home? And she said, yes. She said, uh, uh, we, we asked her, well, is it a, are you able to bring it to us? And she said, yes. And so she brings this down. It's a little figurine, much like perhaps you would have on your mantle or on a shelf in your house, about this size or so. And when she brought it down, we, we just drew the parallel that the God of the universe who created you and all that we see in this world is the one true living God. You've already entrusted your life to him through the person of Jesus Christ. And yet you have this idol in your life that, that you still cling to that doesn't even have the power to present itself before us without your assistance. You had to go and you had to walk it and to bring it literally to us. You placed it in the hands of one of the people that was with us. And as he took it, it fell into two pieces. It had been glued together more than likely through the years. And we ultimately, in the course of conversation, it was like the book of Acts just coming alive right there before our very eyes. I've never had a, a visit like this at all, ever in my life. And, and you literally felt like you're in the first century. And we asked her, would you like to, to get rid of this? There's a passage in Acts, and I, forgive me, I can't recall where it is, but there's a passage in Acts uh, where, where the, 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 the city comes to Jesus. There are those that place their faith in, in Christ. They, they listen to, uh, to Paul's testimony, and they ultimately begin to burn and to dispose of all of the magic arts that they had. And we said to her, would you like to get rid of this? Would you like to dispose of this once and for all? And she said, yes. And so we went out to the back door. We went out into her back little patio, a very simple area, and she opened her trash can, and I'm talking with authority. I won't guess how old she is, but you can guess yourself. I'm talking with authority. It was like a LeBron dunk, man. She was like, boom, put that out of the trash can, and it was like a scene from Dora the Explorer, right? People are speaking Spanish, and dogs are barking, ruff, 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 and everybody's like dancing. It was just an exciting scene. And the, the ultimate thing is, is that the reason it all happened is because God moved in the heart of this woman who had a relationship with him, who was out of fellowship with him because there was literally an idol in her life. And when she got rid of it, this was the smile that we saw virtually for the first time. She was, a, I'm telling you, this isn't some preacher story. She was like a different woman from that point on. And I think to this message, and I think about her, and I think about the whole concept of spiritual misalignment, and I think about how much joy could be restored in this room today if we as believers can only walk out of here knowing that I'm in fellowship with God. That what sin I've clung to, I choose to repent of and to pursue Christ with all my heart. And I wonder what joy can be found today for those that have never given their lives to Jesus to begin with. Who are maybe just a little bit tired by now of digging wells that just aren't doing it for us. But today you're ready to take off those gloves and lay down that shovel and say, Lord Jesus, for the first time, I've realized I need you. And I admit my sin to you. And I fall down before you asking for your forgiveness and salvation that I might follow you you know what, it's that joy he'll hear, I guarantee it.
And it's that prayer prayed by one who doesn't know him that unlocks your key to the relationship with God that you've always needed and reserved your spot in heaven that you've always needed. So where are you misaligned today in your relationship with God? What is it perhaps that has caused you to fall away from where you once were to a place of misalignment? Second question, how much has that cost you? Where has it cost you? And third question, are you willing today to come back into fellowship or to step into relationship with God? Maybe for the first time in a long time. Lord Jesus, you came for us. You came for us because we needed you. You came for us because we needed a substitute. We needed a sacrifice. We couldn't sacrifice ourselves because we're stained with sin. Sacrifice would have meant nothing before God is holy. We certainly can't substitute for ourselves. And so we needed you to come, and you did. You came for us because you love us. You came for us because you were the only substitute available as perfectly God becoming perfectly man. And when you died for us on the cross, you took our place and you paid our sin debt for us. And yet we know that doesn't automatically get us into a relationship with God. We have to come to the place to where we choose for ourselves whether we're going to acknowledge you, Lord Jesus, as God and whether we're going to respond in repentance from our sin and placing our faith in you to be not just God, but our God and our Lord and our Savior. And so I pray today for those in this place that have never given their lives to you, Lord Jesus, that if you're at all at work in their lives, that you would also give them the courage to let it go today and to invite you to come in and forgive and take over. And God, for those of us that have made that choice, Lord, I pray that we would take real inventory of our lives to see are we walking with you the way that you would have us to? Are our lives yielded fully? And are we at a place to where we can say we're aligned with you, not in some mystical, crazy way, but in a way to where we can say we're in step with you and our lives are yielded. If not, Lord, help us to be quick today to confess what's come between us, to confess what we've substituted for you. And may we come home full strength and find the grace that your word promises. And so, Lord, whatever decisions we need to make, help us to make them. Help us to follow you. And God, we praise you in advance for the great results that are going to come, the joy and the hope and the peace and the blessing. For it's in Jesus' name we pray.